All right. So like I said, this, this will be the last week, I can, I can promise you. Um, so last week, I was actually, as I was discussing with some people, it was very edifying uh, for myself, and I think really everyone in the uh, Sunday school, it was great conversation, a lot of people chimed in, so it was very much appreciate that, and uh, I, I learned quite a bit, and I think uh, hopefully you, the audience, learned quite a bit also. Um, so we're going to finish it up, and what I'm going to do is... The, uh, I guess you could say, apologetic styles we've been going through, you can break them down into different categories. Uh, some people say, well, maybe there's only three. Some people say there's five different commentators I've read. Not a whole lot of agreement of the different styles of apologetics and defending the faith, but for simplicity's sake, I broke them down into four. And did everyone get a handout? Yeah, there's, there was on the, I don't know if there's any more. Yeah, uh, but there are four major viewpoints that we're going to be looking at from an apologetic standpoint today. And you can do with what you want with the sheet. I think it's pretty beneficial. just gives an overview of the four broad areas that we're going to be going through. And just a brief synopsis, a brief way of defending the viewpoint of the faith. And again, every single person's different, so you're going to have a different viewpoint and uh, way that you, that you like going about apologetics. So, let's just a reminder here. What we have to understand is that, A, none of our arguments will be the primary cause of unbelievers coming to faith. So, my classic approach, or my presuppositional approach, is to demonstrate the existence of God and to ultimately get people to the New Testament. So, we are required, according to 1 Peter 3.15, let me read it, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So why are we supposed to go about apologetics? That's not rhetorical. Exactly. We're commanded to by God. So whether you like to or not, it is a commandment of the New Testament to give a reasoned defense of our faith. Now, as we're going to see here, there's not an explicit way of going about sharing our faith, giving a reason for the hope that's within us. I think we've been given latitude by the Lord as to the best way to approach it. And then B is, again, we're commanded to give a defense. So those are the two areas with which we have to go about with apologetics. And again, why is this area critical? The nature of our existence really develops in the philosophical world. And as soon as someone says philosophy, and I completely understand, most people's eyes glaze completely over. Well, they think to myself, they think to themselves, I'm just an average Joe. I don't need philosophy. I'll leave that to the universities. I'll leave that to the professors and professional theologians. But what I can tell you is from a philosophical standpoint, the world which exists now, presently in the United States, and in the West, was formulated in the philosophical realm over the last 200 to 300 years in the Enlightenment. Whether it be Marxism, or Bolshevism, or the pornographic revolution, or critical race theory, all of these things that we struggle with and are dealing with in our society all started at the theoretical and philosophical level. We're all dealing with it. We're 
the existentialism, the nihilism, or the, the nihilism that, that we deal with is all based and formulated at the philosophical level. So we live our own individual lives, but we are all inundated with the thoughts and theories of it. Kind of just a brief way of, I, I thought, explaining of this is remember in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, Daniel is given this vision and he sees the prince of uh, Greece, he sees the prince of Persia, he sees a future prince, and these are not actually physical beings. Daniel was still in the physical realm, but listen to what he says here. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So kind of in tandem, the philosophical world is not what we deal with. It's above our heads. It's in the universities, in the intellectual atmosphere. But yet it still is with us. It still affects us. And using the example of, of Daniel... These spiritual forces and spiritual powers that are around the thrones of the world, we can't see, yet we are intimately affected by them. So it is critical, at the very least, to at least begin to understand the ideas that are presented to us, really on a daily basis, and how to go about defending the faith and what we believe is proper. So again, on your sheet, we're just going to go through here and again... If you have any comments or questions, please stop, and we'd be more than happy to discuss. And if you don't want to, then you can, of course, as always, see me afterwards. But the first term on your sheet, as we were going through last week, I added this one. I think it kind of goes in tandem uh, with the first one we looked at last week, as basically like intuitive. And the first one you're going to see on your sheet is called fideism. Fideism. Now... It took me about an hour to finally understand what that word was. Who knows what that word fide means? Think. Yeah, it's faith alone. If you look in the back, sola fide, by faith alone. Now, this is a form of apologetic. And as we'll see here, there are many theologians that tend to think that this actually is not a form of apologetics or defending your faith. But as we'll see here, there are quite a few theologians, even Martin Luther himself and Tertullian in the early church, kind of used a hybrid or a form of this way of apologetics. They viewed it as their preferential way of defending the faith. So let me go ahead and read it. This fideism is an approach to apologetics that argues that the truths of faith cannot and should not be justified rationally. Or to look at it another way, Fidus contend that the truths of Christianity are properly apprehended by faith alone. The word fideism derives from the Latin fide, pronounced, of course, fide, meaning faith. And so, in a general sense, means a position that assigns some kind of priority to faith. Now, this, on the surface, seems kind of paradoxical to apologetics. Apologetics is a reasoned, a rational defense of the faith, that is, using our intellect. But the fide, or the fideist, believed that you can't necessarily have a rational understanding of faith. Let me read what Stephen Nichols says. He's he's the president or a teaching fellow uh, in Ligonier. And he had a very good overview just of apologetics. And he says this. 
in one sense, this is a no-apologetics view of apologetics. That is, this approach does not use apologetics in the sense of a reasoned defense of the faith. Fideism is simply the idea of presenting one's personal testimony and speaking of one's own faith in Christ as a testimony to Christ in the gospel. And he uses an example of a hymn. I serve a risen Savior. We ask the question, you ask me how I know he lives? How do we know the truth claim or the truth claims of Christianity? According to the hymn, he lives within my heart, is the answer. The idea is that we can present personal testimony, which is a great thing. But according to this view of apologetics, that's really all we have to offer. And that's why I think this actually is a legitimate form of apologetics. You're not necessarily giving a reasoned, rational defense, as it were, from a theology standpoint or from a philosophical standpoint but the reasons that you're giving is the faith that you have in Jesus Christ and I know last week as as Chris said in Sunday school and I'm pretty much summing up Chris's words he says he's a simple person which I, I think that's probably an understatement I think Chris is probably a little bit more sophisticated than he thinks but nonetheless from a simplistic standpoint This is a valuable way of sharing our faith. And I'll go back and use the example that we used last week of Bill Nye the Science Guy when he debated Ken Ham. I'm sure Bill Nye the Science Guy could tie any of us up in here in a knot. And his sophistication and his philosophical thought, his explanations of science, he could probably chew us up and spit us out. Rightfully so. So how is it that we, average people, could contend with him intellectually? We probably can't. Yet a valuable defense against Bill and I, the science guy, nevertheless, is to share your personal testimony. Bill, this is the reason why I believe what I believe. I can't give you all of the overviews of the philosophical thoughts of all the philosophical fathers over the last 500 years. But here's the reason for my faith. It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of my personal testimony. It's because this is what I have experienced. That's a valuable way of going about it. It does not have to be an IQ of 150 to be able to explain it. Each and every one of us who's a believer in Jesus Christ has a personal testimony that we can share with the unbeliever. One of the uh, proponents really of this uh, thought is a man of... uh, from um, Denmark. His name was Soren Kierkegaard. He lived in the uh, middle 1800s, and he wasn't very much well-known outside of Denmark, even uh, right after he died, but it wasn't until the late 19th and 20th century when his writings became really well-known throughout the philosophical world in the West. So let me just go ahead and read this again, just as an explanation. Knowing God is not like knowing another human being about whom we may learn additional factual information, and thus begin closing the gap in our knowledge about that person. Rather, true knowledge about God consists in knowing that he is beyond our comprehension. Kierkegaard quotes this, The rule for the relationship between man and humanness is, the more I think about it, the better I understand it. So again, what he's saying, the more I think about a topic, generally speaking, the more I understand it, in a finite capacity. 
But listen here. In the relationship between man and God, the rule is, the more I think about the divine, the less I understand it. As a child, I think that I am very close to God, but the older I become, the more I discover that we are infinitely different, the more deeply I feel the distance, the less I understand God. That is, the more obvious it becomes to me how infinitely exalted he is. So you understand the rationality here is that to the unbeliever, they think they may have some understanding of God. But from his standpoint, is the more you know about God, from a theistic standpoint, from an orthodox standpoint, actually the less you know about God. How can we as finite creatures come to a vast, comprehensive understanding of the finite? So that's one way, or one reason why, Kierkegaard was a fideist. He believed that the more someone came to know about God, actually the less they came to know of him. It seems paradoxical, but I think that's wholly true if you look throughout the Psalms or even out throughout the Bible. Is the more we see God, the more we should fear him and be in terror. And another standpoint, or, or excuse me, another proponent of this was actually Martin Luther himself. And Luther, again, was a little different. He wasn't exactly a fideist, but he was very close, closer than any of the other ones up on the board. Luther says this, or excuse me, uh, Stephen Nichols says this of Luther. For Luther, forgiveness of sins is a gift through faith alone, a gift needed by all human beings because of their bondage to sin. The spiritual bondage is so radical that the human mind is simply incapable of knowing anything significant about God and his will or about understanding the liberating truth of the gospel apart from the works of the Holy Spirit. In this context, Luther takes a very dim view of human reason. In the temporal affairs of human beings in the kingdom of the earth, the rational man is self-sufficient, but in the eternal issues of life in the kingdom of heaven, nature is absolutely stone blind, and human reason is completely incompetent. So what Luther is saying is, yes, we have Romans chapter 1, is that we have clear markings of general revelation all throughout nature. But Luther's point is, is that sin has so polluted us, is that the natural man really is incapable of coming to a knowledge of God. Hence why the fideist approach is you share your testimony, and if it's the Lord's will, the Holy Spirit's will, He is able to use that and open up that person's eyes and ears to see the truth of the gospel. So again, that's just a general overview of the fideist approach, which I think is a a legitimate apologetic approach. Anyone have any comments? Yes, Becky. No, no, that's good. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And again, I don't know if you remember what I said, but 
try to keep it as pure theology. So the vast majority of us in here are similar, I would say, in intelligence and similar in our socioeconomic class. I think generally people tend to lump together in societies with people who are similar to them. Um, So we're not going to be debating generally philosophical ideas with our peers. That's not necessarily who we hang out with at Bible Chapel or people on the west side. Now, that doesn't mean you won't come in contact with them. But find out a way that you understand and then present it to people who are around you. Any other comments? Exactly. And I find it difficult. How do you, how do you under, how, how do you explain faith necessarily? Because there is a faith component in our belief in, in Christ. There is certainly a faith component. How do you explain it? Yeah. 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 Exactly. And as we're going to see here, as we get into the presuppositional versus classic apologetics, that's kind of the debate. Yeah, very good. I guess you could say as our culture becomes less educated, from a philosophical standpoint, it actually becomes easier to present the gospel. All right. Well, let's continue on to B, presuppositionalism. And we kind of touched on this last week, but let's go into a little bit more detail here. Let me read what Stephen Nichols said. The existence of God is assumed by the scriptures. It is presupposed. It starts with that presupposition of all knowledge. Van Til says, the only proof of the Christian position is that unless its truth is presupposed, there is no possibility of proving anything at all. So you presuppose presuppose the Christianity of truth and then simply proclaim it. That's presuppositionalism. Pretty straightforward. Let me go ahead and read this. The presuppositionalist approach to apologetics calls for the Christian and non-Christian to engage in internal examination of their respective worldview, and thus determine whether or not they are internally consistent. The essence of presuppositional apologetics is an attempt to demonstrate that the non-Christian worldview forces him to a state of of, uh, subjectivity, irrationalism, and moral anarchy. Now, the presuppositional approach really is this, is that every single person has presuppositions. Let's define presuppositions. What's a supposition? Really, ideas or or beliefs. Every single person has a presuppositional, excuse me, a presuppositional belief. 
I always like when you have news outlets or writers say they're unbiased. We're objective journalists. No such thing. There has never been one objective, unbiased person in the history of humanity. I guess you could probably argue Christ was unbiased. He was not tainted by sin. But every single person has a disposition towards bias one way or another. It's like someone saying they're politically independent. That's not possible. Maybe you can analyze both sides, but we all have preconceived notions and ideas that beset us. That doesn't mean you can't change your mind, but no one is unbiased. So the presuppositional idea is, is that they are saying is that the atheist or the philosopher is not neutral. They're not neutral on God. They're not looking at the evidence necessarily. They are saying is that the atheist has a presupposition. They have a pre-idea of what they believe. So the presuppositionalist is then saying, we don't even try to debate that. We just go right to the scriptures. We go right to what we believe. This form of argument that's called transcendental, that would say nobody is autonomous and nobody is neutral. And in fact, while we all pretend to be autonomous and neutral, we couldn't even say that the grass in the field is green. We couldn't even do it preconditionally. As Van Til says, we couldn't pr- uh, predicate one thing of another if we didn't already depend upon the knowledge of God, which we have immediately in creation, in conscience, and all the rest. And so, the transcendentalist says, what are the preconditions of knowledge? He doesn't argue from an imminent platform upon the transcendent God. He argues that, in fact, you wouldn't know anything. You couldn't even argue all one way or another, down or sideways, without God. So, again, the presuppositionalist is saying is you can't do anything without God. So, you assume, you presuppose that God is. Exists Now, in 1977, I read this quote from a gentleman named Greg uh, Bonson. Anyone ever heard of Greg Bonson? He was uh, a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He died like in his 40s or 50s uh, in the 90s. But in 1977, him and R.C. Sproul, I think they were both in their 20s, which is quite remarkable. But they both had a debate, R.C. Sproul being the classic apologist, Greg Bonson and the school of Cornelius Van Til, who really developed this presuppositional approach, had a great debate. And uh, I was reading through the debate this week, and it was very informative, but that quote was taken from Bonson. Again, he says, we couldn't know anything unless God existed. So they take it from their arguments that God already exists. So if you're arguing with Bill Nye the science guy, you don't argue with Bill Nye the science guy whether God exists or not. You argue with him in a state or in a matter or in a manner as if God already exists. Because Bill would have no arguments unless God already existed. Now, I would say from a personal standpoint, I understand and I can see the presuppositional position. I struggle with it a little bit because the reason being is presuppositionalists will say it themselves, all arguments are circular. Really, in essence. Everything's circular. What's a circular argument? Is you start up here, you say God exists. Well, how do you know God exists? Because the Bible says so. 
how do you know the Bible's accurate? Because it's the word of God. And the presuppositionalists would say, yes, their argument is circular, but everyone else's argument is circular. There's no starting point. So at least in that aspect, they are consistent. But nevertheless, from what I've come to understand, even from presuppositionalists themselves, is the argument is circular. So if you don't have an issue with that, then go ahead and use it. Argue with anyone with the mindset already that God exists. Does that make sense? Am I adding clarity or confusion to the subject? I, I actually want uh, someone's, someone's opinion. It, yeah, it's, it's a circular argument. He, um, Greg Bonson says this again. I can show you the rational or the intellectual epistemological order of all things if you start with my God, the revelation of my God. So again, what he says from that standpoint is that he can show you the reason all things exist. The reason he can show you that all things exist is because God exists. There is no other rational way, really, of saying how we exist unless we have the presupposition that God exists. I know it's kind of deep and complex, but that's the presuppositional approach. You start with God. Explain that. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily disagree with that. And we actually had that conversation last week about presuppositionalism. Yeah, I'm sorry. She she said it's going to it's going to your conversation is going to break down with people even before you begin. So if I go up to Bill and I, the science guy, and I say God exists, well, he'll just laugh you out of the room. Where do you really start? Now, I'm sure the presuppositionalists, the philosophers would certainly be able to debate Bill and I, the science guy. But I understand from your standpoint is that is difficult, is you don't necessarily have a common ground or a common place to begin. Uh, James White, um, he's a well-known apologist in the 21st century. He's a presuppositionalist. And he really, he he says this. He says, he made a valuable point. He said, first, Christ is king. That is our presupposition. But by laying aside presuppositions and participating in arguments, you are laying aside your presupposition that Christ is king. White takes other arguments to be deceptive. Excuse me, he takes those arguments to be deceptive. If that is what you believe, that's what you have to start with. So again, from the presuppositional standpoint, as they would say, you believe that Christ is king. So you have to start with that presupposition or that mindset that Christ is king. And from James White's standpoint, is if you don't do that, you're being deceptive. Now you can take that for what it's worth, but that's one of the reasons why presuppositionalists are what they are. Is they start with the standpoint that Christ is king. All right, let's, uh, and if you notice there too with presuppositionalism, I did say home field advantage, kind of a one way to discern the difference between presuppositionalism and classic apologetics is home field advantage. You're starting with your beliefs. You're starting with the word of God, which does make it easier in a lot of ways. Is we can go back to the word of God. We can go back to what we believe to defend the faith. 
Now, going on, anyone have any comments or questions? If you need clarification, you can see me afterwards. I know this is deep stuff, but nonetheless, um, I, I think it's, it's valuable and important. Yes, Dad. So you would say, from a thousand foot standpoint, you would be presuppositional. You would start with the knowledge of God. Yep, which is which is valid, which is valid. All right, anything else? All right, let's go to classic apologetics. And I titled this, Neutral Ground or Playing Away. And the reason I say that is because we are setting aside our presuppositions of the gospel, of the existence of God, and we're going to look at the arguments. Now, you can break down classic apologetics into a number of different uh, categories, but you have classic apologetics, and then you have evidential apologetics, which you would probably classify both under classical apologetics. And we'll look at the distinctions here real quick. You can say the classic apologetics is more substantive or more complex, and I think most classic apologists would probably agree But I think it's a fair assessment. Given the defender has to have some rational understanding of the philosophical background of the debates, they are entertaining. And I really like this quote from C.S. Lewis, who was a classic apologist. He says this, Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. And I think that's a very pertinent example of why we have to engage in these debates. B.B. Warfield, another classic apologist, said this. The, really the last uh, orthodox conservative president of Princeton Theological Seminary. The science of theology takes as its primary data the fact of scripture. But for theology to be properly grounded, we must know that the Bible is indeed inspired scripture from God. Ultimately, this means that the first principles of theology must be to establish the fact of God's existence. Warfield distinguishes five subdivisions of apologetics based on five subjects. The first three are God, religion, and revelation, by which he he means that apologetics must begin with establishing the existence of God, the capacity of the human mind to know him, and the accessibility of knowledge concerning him. From there, apologetics must go on to establish the divine origin of Christianity as the religion of revelation in the special sense of the word. And finally, to establish the trustworthiness of the Christian scriptures as the documentation of the revelation of God for the redemption of sinners. So again, I think the classical position of apologetics is probably more complex to go about explaining to an atheistic person. But from my personal opinion, and again, there are 
way brighter people who would disagree with me, but I think dealing in the realms of philosophy and the intellectuals of our society, I tend to think that a classic approach is appropriate. Because as Teresa pointed out earlier, it's very difficult to engage with someone who says God doesn't exist with the presupposition that God exists. Where is the neutral ground? So from the example of R.C. Sproul, you're putting aside your presuppositions that God exists. And you're going to say, okay, I'm going to come into this neutral. You, Mr. Atheist, you're going to come into this neutral. And we're going to look at the truths and the facts presented around us. We're going to look and see if we can agree that 2 plus 2 equals 4. We're going to see if we can agree that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And it's starting, it's, it's building blocks, it's building the foundation of truth. If we can agree on the basis of that truth, if we can agree that God has to exist, then we can go then to divine revelation in the scriptures, and then we can go to the cross of Calvary. R.C. Sproul basically said this, we need to prove the existence of God to get to the cross at Calvary. And I think that's a fair assessment. And again, I think this may take longer, but again, I think it's legitimate, especially dealing with more sophisticated individuals, if you can necessarily say that. Um, And one way to go about this, one way to debate an atheistic or an agnostic or a doubter person is to look at what's called the moral argument. The moral argument, and as you can probably guess, it has something to do with Morality. Hoxima said this, Every man has a sense of obligation of what is right and wrong, together with an undeniable feeling of responsibility to do what is right, and a a sense of self-condemnation when he commits what is evil. So perhaps if you're discussing, again, we'll use Bill Nye the Science Guy as a foil. You say, Bill, you know that if I take your daughter and throw her off a cliff... You think Bill and I, the science guy, would have a problem with that? I'm sure he probably would, even though he would not deny that. And then from there, you can perhaps discuss, well, where does that general morality come from? Is that whether the person's in China, Russia, South America, right here in the United States, every human being has an understanding inside of them that that is wrong, that that's abominable. Where did that come from? And I think from there, as you can continue to build it up, there is a voice that resides inside of every human that tells him general right from wrong. Regardless of culture, the intuitive nature of God and our thoughts, so the voices reside in every person throughout the ages. And again, as we see cultures throughout human history, all have some form and type of morality. That's the moral argument. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, Paul says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternating, accusing, or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So a biblical example of that is that every single person, the Gentiles who did not have the law, they did not have the Ten Commandments, nevertheless had a law written on their hearts. 
That's the moral argument. And then there's a cosmological argument. And this really came um, from Aquinas himself, Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century uh, theologian who a lot of um, classic apologists look back to in their defense. Oliver Buswell states, if something now exists, something must be eternal unless something comes from nothing. So that's the cosmological argument. If something now exists, something had to eternally exist. Why? It's because we know something does not come from nothing. It's impossible. There was also an argument that Aquinas made in a similar manner. Causal. uh, uh, Causal. A causal argument. Everything has a cause. I was conceived. My parents were conceived. And then before them, etc., going all the way back, whether 10,000 years or 15 billion years, something intelligent must be the first cause. If I exist now, and I go back to my parents and grandparents and etc., and you go back, no matter how long, there has to be a first cause. There has to be a primary cause. Again, why? Because something does not come from nothing. Now, of course... In a debate with a denier, an agnostic, or a theist, that doesn't necessarily lead back to the existence of God. They may deny it and say, well, maybe it's just a mystery. We don't know. Nonetheless, it's uh, a debate that you can have and talk it over with them. So that's the moral argument and the cosmological argument. I think probably the moral argument is probably the, uh, the strongest argument. And there's other arguments that we won't delve into for time's sake and also uh, for simplicity's sake. And then finally, we have the uh, evidentialists. Now, the classic apologist will set aside and go back to the very beginnings. How do we prove the existence of God? The evidentialist, on the other hand, won't do that. They kind of go in reverse. So what the evidentialist does is they try to prove the resurrection. Or they try to prove that miracles existed. Or that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And then from there, if you can say that miracles existed, then you would have to conclude that God existed. If you would, have to, if you would conclude that the resurrection happened, that Jesus Christ claimed deity, then that would then lead that there has to be the existence of a God. That's the evidential standpoint. Let me go ahead and read this. The impetus to the development of evidentialist apologetics was the rise of deism. By the early 18th century, modern science seemed to be explaining more and more about the natural world, requiring God as an explanation for things less and less. Copernicus, Newton, etc. Giants of science had completely changed the way modern people looked at the world. The enormous success of science encouraged many people to believe that eventually everything could be explained naturalistically. Thus eliminating the need to appeal to the existence of the supernatural creator to explain the reality as we know it. And that was from Kenneth D. Boa and Robert Bowman. In fact, a lot of the information I got here was in their book, which was very good. I found it online. So again, the evidentialist is going against really the deistic thought. And the deists believe that really God exists, but he's not involved in creation. He winds a clock and, and lets it go. And the deists, like Thomas Jefferson, completely denied any idea of miracles, really anything of the supernatural. I think Jefferson even made the Jeffersonian Bible where he took out all of the miracles in the New Testament. 
So that kind of shows you the, the deistic thought. And the evidentialists uh, really developed their forms of uh, ideas to counteract that. So an evidentialist argument, you have the teleological argument. Order and useful arrangement in a system imply intelligence and purpose and organizing cause. The universe is characterized by order and useful arrangements. Therefore, the universe has an intelligent and free cause. That's the teleological argument. If you want to use an example, Psalm 19.1. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the works of his hands. Since there's intelligence, since there's design and purpose in creation, there has to be a creator. The ontological argument, Hoxima says this, argues that we have an idea of God. The idea of God is infinitely greater than man himself. Hence, it cannot have its origins in man. It can only have its origins in God himself. Which I think is a very valuable argument. Our idea of God historically is always infinitely greater than man. And thus, it can originate with man. And then here's an interesting one. The argument from congruity. The belief in the existence of God is best explained. The facts of our moral, mental, and religious nature... As well as the material universe, therefore God exists. That's the evidentialist approach. But the only issue is with evidentialists, as most of them would admit, is that really the the existence of God is a probability. It's the highest likelihood. It's never an exact. It's never concrete. The evidentialist would say what's probable is the existence of God. What's the greatest? Excuse me. What's the greatest probability is that God exists. Evolution is less probable than the existence of God. Let me just go ahead and read this here. I think Lewis Sperry Schaefer, in his commentary, really sums it up well here. And again, this seems very complex, and it takes a lot of time for us to understand. But nevertheless, we're still, we're still dealing with God's word. It is still sharp. It's still powerful. No matter what approach we use, if we present scripture, the Holy Spirit's able to move. Let me read this. Although these arguments for the existence of God have considerable validity, and man may be justly condemned by God for rejecting them, they have not been sufficient to bring man into proper relationship to God or to produce a real faith in God unassisted by scriptural revelation. It is the Bible that the complete revelation of God is given, confirming all the facts found in nature, but adding to natural revelation many truths which natural revelation could not have disclosed. Again, the purpose of these arguments is not to bring someone to Christ immediately. It is to get them to the gospel, to get them to the New Testament, and then through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sinners can come to repentance. So if you have any comments or questions, I went a minute over. Please see me afterwards. Thank you.